the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Just want to say up front, I had a medical test yesterday, and I'm very thankful that I got a relatively good report. I'll maybe go into some detail later in the week, but appreciate your prayers and... Um, just grateful that I'm moving forward and things are improving. Well, today on the program, we're going to talk with Sarah Partial Perry. She is a legal fellow for the Edwin Meese III Center for Legal and Judicial Studies at the Heritage Foundation. We're going to talk about the fact that the U.S. Supreme Court has uh, taken up a case that could, uh, if they choose to do so, uh, give them the opportunity to revisit Roe versus Wade as a uh, they agreed to hear a major abortion case, the first since of course, since um, Amy Coney Barrett was uh, seated on the court. Um, uh, but then again, it could be a very narrow decision. In any event, we'll talk with Sarah Partial Perry about what the Supreme Court has agreed to hear and how broad or narrow this is likely to uh, to be. We'll also talk with Grace Melton. She serves as Senior Associate for Social Issues at the United Nations. We'll talk about the Biden administration's promotion of LGBTQI rights in foreign policy using the Department of Defense and other agencies as well and threatening international religious freedom as well as religious freedom here at home. Uh, both of them will join us in this hour. Then in the five o'clock hour, I'm looking forward to a conversation with Dr. Everett Piper. He is the author most recently of Grow Up, Life Isn't Safe, But It's Good. It is uh, in my book, so to speak, uh, a must read for those who take uh, the culture very seriously and where we are headed and recognize the perils associated with that direction. He'll be joining us in the uh, quarter hour of the second hour of today's program, if that's not confusing enough. But first, we'll take a look at some of the uh, some of the headlines. Well, you may know by now that five Oregon counties are going to move to lower risk levels on Friday, but not Multnomah County. Well, five uh, counties have reached the 65 percent threshold of residents 16 and older who received at least the first dose of COVID-19 vaccine. And that allows them to move to the state's lower risk categories as of as early as Friday. Well, Governor Kate Brown announced um, yesterday that those counties are Benton, Deschutes, Hood River, Lincoln, and Washington counties. Multnomah is not among the five counties moving to the uh, lower risk, even though it's vaccinated at least 65% of its residents, 16 and older. It turns out Oregon has um, the most populous county, didn't submit its equity plan to reach underserved uh, groups. And that's a requirement for eligibility, so it won't be moving to the lower risk by Friday. Now, Multnomah County Health Officer Dr. Jennifer Vine said it's going to submit the uh, county's equity plan on Friday with a goal to moving to the lower risk on May the 28th, uh, right before Memorial Day weekend. Multnomah County Chair Deborah Kafori said the county didn't want to rush to put together its equity plan. The health of our whole community hinges on the health of each of our com uh, communities, and that's why the uh, uh, 
quiet component of the state's newest framework must be developed intentionally, she said, and that's going to take more than three days. Well, in an interview with KGW, Vines also cautioned that just because counties are moving to lower risk doesn't mean the pandemic is over. Uh, duh. Uh, I do worry that uh, there will continue to be groups of people who are susceptible to COVID-19 and that we can see outbreaks in other uh, in these groups, she said. We know the virus can find its way to vulnerable members of our community. We just have to hope that uh, with the looser uh, approach um, leading into summer, that it's not enough to overwhelm or paralyze our hospitals and health systems. And it might just be um, that we have enough sense, generally speaking, to maybe figure this out just a bit. Well, Oregon is updating the statewide mask guidance. It's uh, done so. Fully vaccinated people no longer have to wear their mask in most indoor settings. Now, that does not apply to private businesses who may require that in order to shop there, to eat there, whatever the purpose of your arrival might be, you are required to wear masks. Um, The Oregon Health Authority announced the new mask guidelines for people fully vaccinated against COVID. That means you've had both shots and there's been a two-week period uh, since the second shot. The OHA says those fully vaccinated will no longer be required to wear a mask in most indoor settings, but only where vaccination status is checked. So you have to demonstrate, apparently, that you have been fully vaccinated. Well, under the updated guidelines, businesses, employers, and faith institutions can determine their own mask use policies. They can choose to no longer require masks, but they'll be required to uh, have people show proof of vaccination. Uh, OHA's updated guidelines um, comes after the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention eased the COVID restrictions last week. The CDC said fully vaccinated people can stop wearing masks and physically distancing in most public spaces. A fully vaccinated individual is a person who has received both doses of a two-dose COVID vaccine or one dose of a single-dose vaccine, and at least 14 days has passed since the person's final dose of COVID-19 vaccine. Governor Brown said the CDC's announcement is another sign that as more people become fully vaccinated, the closer we are to ending this pandemic. So this is the new guidance in the state of Oregon. Fully vaccinated people in Oregon are no longer required to wear a face mask or physically distance, whether indoors or outdoors, two weeks after their final COVID vaccine dose. Masks and social distancing are still required in the following places, regardless of vaccine status, public transportation, schools, hospitals and clinics, homeless shelters, youth and adult correctional facilities, and long-term care facilities. Businesses, employers, and faith institutions can choose to no longer require masks and physical distancing for fully vaccinated individuals or continue to require masks and physical distancing in their locations for all individuals regardless of vaccination status. If a business, employer, or faith institution chooses to no longer require masks and physical distancing, the business, employer, or faith institution must require visitors to show proof of vaccination and review the proof of vaccination at the time. And uh, in that case, a business would need to have a policy for checking the vaccination status of its customers and employees if they are not wearing a mask. Fully vaccinated individuals would need to provide proof they've been vaccinated if they want to remove face coverings and not observe physical distancing guidelines. So that's what the state is saying uh, we are now required to do. Well, state health experts also announced that masks are no longer required outdoors, regardless of vaccination status. Now, let me repeat that. Um, Health experts also announced that masks are no longer required outdoors, 
regardless of vaccination status. However, the OHA recommends that people who are not vaccinated and who are at high risk of severe COVID-19 disease continue to wear masks and physically distance in outdoor areas and large gatherings. So there you have it. So when can we stop wearing masks altogether? Well, some health experts predict mask wearing could become the norm during flu season. And that would be a personal choice, one would presume. Well, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention created some confusion last week when they said that those who are fully vaccinated can, in most circumstances, forego mask wearing, both in and outdoors, while those who are unvaccinated have to wear um, masks um, as they had before. Well, fully vaccinated and unvaccinated people, however, must keep wearing masks while in crowded indoor settings like hospitals, museums, movie theaters, and while on public transportation. Well, the director of the CDC, Dr. Rochelle Walensky, says we have all longed for this moment when we can get back to some sense of normalcy when she announced at the um, during a White House COVID-19 briefing, based on the continuing downward trajectory of cases, the scientific data on the performance of our vaccines and our understanding of how this virus spreads, that moment has come for those who are fully vaccinated. But despite her announcement, confusion still abounds. I hope we at least clarified some in the state of Oregon. Many businesses and localities are maintaining mask requirements because they can't be sure of an individual's vaccination history. In short, there's no fixed date when the entire nation will no longer be compelled to wear masks in all circumstances, although a good number of states, I don't remember the exact number now, um, have reported no deaths and have uh, foregone their mask requirements now for some time. So that's encouraging. Um, others, uh, Other states are being a bit more cautious. And as I've described just a moment ago, in the state of Oregon, things are lightening up, at least for those who have been fully vaccinated, which means you've had where required two shots, where only one is required, one shot, plus a 14-day period following that second shot um, to affirm that you are, in fact, fully covered. Well, here you go. Well, we're looking at um, at the day's news. We'll continue to do that after the break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Also coming up uh, in the latter part, the latter half of this hour, we'll talk with Sarah Parshall-Perry. Uh, we'll talk about the um, Roe versus Wade decision that the Supreme Court may revisit. They agreed to hear a major abortion case. We'll also talk with Grace Melton on the Biden administration's promotion of uh, LGBTQI rights. I'm not even sure what all of those uh, letters represent, but uh, in foreign policy, threatening international religious freedom and facing charges of colonialism by imposing U.S. standards on other nations. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Later this hour, we'll uh, talk about the Supreme Court, who has agreed to hear a major abortion case, and we'll talk about the Biden administration's promotion of LGBTQI rights in foreign policy that threatens international religious freedom. Well, a new poll is shedding some uh, detailed, quantifiable light on just how much damage the challenges of uh, the last year have done to downtown Portland's reputation in the minds of those who spend money there, most often metro area residents. Well, the data comes uh, courtesy of the Oregonian Oregon Live. They commissioned the poll with the help of Portland-based DHM Research. There have been polls around what business owners think of downtown. There have been polls around what tourists perceive of downtown says business reporter Jamie Goldberg in an interview on Monday for The Oregonian. But we really want to look at what this meant for Portlanders and people in the metro 
uh, region. To gather the data, Postler surveyed about um, 600 people living across the Portland area. Half of them live within Portland city limits. Uh, When asked about safety, 42% of people polled said downtown was much less safe than it was a year ago. Another 21% said it was somewhat less safe. When asked why people don't come downtown as often anymore, more than 60% listed protests, homeless camps, and general concerns about safety. Well, Goldberg, the um, uh, journalist, says the findings absolutely mirror what she heard in her reporting, but there was some nuance. There are plenty of people and people uh, that took this poll that don't think downtown is unsafe, but really think that the issue that they may face in downtown mirrors issues throughout the county and throughout the country, throughout the state, uh, and aren't any different here in Portland. Members of Portland's business community told KGW that the distinction brings them little comfort. I'm not pleased at all, nor are my colleagues. Everyone is wondering What's going on? That's George Schweitzer, managing director of the Benson Hotel. It's no secret tourism has plummeted since COVID-19 hit, but Schweitzer, he adds that businesses around his hotel are hurting too. We want our city back. You know, we want people to be able to enjoy themselves and come downtown and not be fearful of it being unsafe. KGW reached out to Mayor Ted Wheeler's office about this poll on Monday, but got no response. The entire city council released a joint statement to the Oregonian saying, we're grateful for Portlanders' patience. I'm not sure that's a proven fact, but they said, we're grateful for Portlanders' patience, share their sense of urgency, and are actively working on further policy changes that will meet the community's needs, end quote. Commissioners also pointed to the latest city budget passed last week. It pours millions of dollars into tackling key issues, namely homelessness and trash. It does uh, not give any more money to the city's strapped police bureau. Last month, councils uh, devoted $4.1 million to community groups working to combat gun violence. Whether change will uh, happen fast enough remains to be seen. That uh, Portland patience referenced earlier. But Portland Business Alliance CEO Andrew Hone said on Monday he's confident that Portland will bounce back. How quickly and to what degree? That's an open question. The reopening of downtown and the city as a whole will inevitably result in a different look to downtown. There will be different businesses, and certainly some will have um, been lost, and then others will be gained, he said. We've seen an unchecked increase in our demographic positive trends, adding a sixth congressional district, home prices, and the cost of real estate, and our center uh, city and beyond have been on on the increase. So we still see the fundamentals. People still want to be here. It's worth noting the poll also asked how people feel uh, the council is handling issues like homelessness and the protests. In both cases, more than 70 percent said they uh, disapproved of the job officials are doing. Again, a reflection of patient Portlanders. Well, the president's covid warning or maybe threat saying that unvaccinated will end up paying the price. President Biden highlighted on Monday that for the first time since the coronavirus pandemic swept the nation early last year, cases of COVID-19 are down in all 50 states. But in a pitch to encourage unvaccinated Americans to get their shots, the president warned that those who are not vaccinated will end up paying the price. And Biden, in remarks from the White House, also announced that the U.S. will share millions more doses of coronavirus vaccines with other countries around the world. The president highlighted that deaths are down from COVID by 81 percent, which he said was their lowest level since April of last year. But he cautioned that I can't promise that will continue this way. We know there will be advances and setbacks, and we know that that may uh, 
there may be flare-ups that could occur. But if the unvaccinated get vaccinated, they'll protect themselves and other unvaccinated people around them, end quote. Well, the president warned that if they do not, states uh, with low vaccination rates may see their uh, uh, rates, uh, their progress reversed. Ultimately, those who are not vaccinated will end up paying the price. The vaccinated will continue to be protected against severe illness, but others may not be if you're not vaccinated. Again, end quote. So I guess the threat is that you're more vulnerable and he wasn't threatening some sort of action from Washington. In other developments, the U.S. military has intercepted a small aircraft in restricted airspace as President Biden visited his Delaware home. And the Democratic Del Rio, Texas mayor blasted the White House and AOC as the border crisis triggers school lockdowns there. Dr. Mark Siegel, he says as COVID risks fade, the fear remains. Too many are still gripped with fear on the worst case scenarios. And a GOP resolution backs Israel's right to defend itself and omits a call for a ceasefire. Jason Chavitz, he calls on Biden to fire Dr. Fauci, saying his time has come and gone. President Biden's income dropped in 2020 as he campaigned for president. President Biden experienced a decline as he uh, campaigned for and assumed the presidency during tax year 2020. The president and the first lady reported adjusted uh, gross income of $607,336 in 2020. The White House said on a statement on Monday, uh, they paid $157,414 in federal income tax and their 2020 effective federal income tax rate is 25.9%. They donated 5.1% of their uh, total income to 10 charities. The Bidens reported AGI of about $985,000 the year prior. As previously reported, Biden and his wife earned about $15 million in the two years after they left the White House following Biden's term as vice president. The Biden's total income was $11 million in 2017 and about $4.6 million in 2018. Donald Trump made no secret that he lost out on income during his tenure in the Oval Office. And, of course, he did not accept a salary. In 2019, for example, the former president estimated that he had co- it had cost him between $2 billion and $5 billion to serve as president. I wouldn't have made a fortune if I just ran my business. I was um, doing really well, he said at the time. Well, in other developments, President Biden's nominee for Deputy Secretary of the Department of Veterans Affairs made nearly millions at the National Collegiate Athletic Association, or NC2A, while arguing against paying athletes, uh, college athletes. Donald Remy made $1.8 million in salary over two years as the NC2A's chief legal officer, according to his financial disclosure forms. Uh, Remy uh, is also slated to receive a $1 million and $5 million, respectively, over the next three years as part of a severance package for the NC2A. A $1 million ad campaign accuses uh, President Biden of working with dark money and teachers unions to keep schools closed. And former Vice President Mike Pence in uh, president says that in President Biden's jobs plan and China first tax plan, Americans come last. And Politico is rightly being accused of cleaning up for Biden and teachers unions for their part on the campaign to reopen the schools. CNN's Don Lemon is being panned for his desperate political stunt, a publicity effort, after suggesting he was leaving the network. Well, CNN anchor Don Lemon is being panned over the what critics described as a publicity stunt about his future at the network. On Friday, Lemon repeatedly teased a major announcement he was going to make on CNN tonight, even hinting that whatever he announced would be the end of an era. Before closing his show, Lemon told viewers that CNN tonight with Don Lemon was abruptly ending. 
It's been really, really great. This is the last uh, night that will be uh, CNN Tonight with Don Lemon, Lemon said. So I appreciate all the years of CNN Tonight with Don Lemon. But changes are coming, and I will fill you in. Well, the announcement sparked a wild response on social media, with both fans and critics sounding the alarm of what he strongly suggested was a sudden departure from the liberal network. Shortly after uh, Lemon uh, took to Twitter and assured his viewers that he was not leaving CNN, everybody calmed down, he said. I didn't say I was leaving CNN. I just said that it was the end of an era for CNN Tonight with Don Lemon. He added, you have to tune in on Monday at 10 o'clock to see. Ha ha. Well, the editor of The Daily Beast is accusing a Jewish analyst of being paid by Israel while denying Hamas uses human shields. Tom Cotton says the Associated Press has uncomfortable questions to answer for sharing a Gaza building with Hamas. And Dan Crenshaw clashed with NBC's Chuck Todd over GOP drama, saying, I'm not going to take the bait from liberal press. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we'll talk with Sarah Parshall Perry, legal fellow for the Edwin Meese III Center for Legal and Judicial Studies at the Heritage Foundation on um, Roe v. Wade Wade, rather, being in the crosshairs as the Supreme Court agrees to hear a major abortion case. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, as you know by now, Roe v. Wade is in the crosshairs as the Supreme Court agrees to hear a major abortion case. But is it a case that will uh, render a decision as to Roe v. Wade's viability in the 21st century? Well, overturning Roe would return abortion policy to the states where it belongs, where it was prior to that decision. Uh, and to the democratic process in which Americans debate the morality of abortion. But first, let's look at what the Supreme Court has agreed to hear and what's likely to happen. Here to join us to talk about that is Sarah Parshall Perry. She is a legal fellow for the Edwin Meese III Center for Legal and Judicial Studies at the Heritage Foundation. Sarah, thank you for joining us. You're welcome. Glad to uh, glad to be here with you. Well, let's begin by talking about the fact that the Supreme Court has not heard a case like this, certainly since its latest member has become uh, a part of the court. But it's been a number of years since an opportunity to revisit Roe versus Wade has come up. What's the the question that's being addressed in this particular case? And is it likely uh, to result in a review of Roe versus Wade? Well, they'll definitely have to take Roe versus Wade into consideration at a bare minimum. The case is Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization, and it's a challenge to the constitutionality of a Mississippi law that bars abortions after the 15th week of pregnancy in multiple circumstances with only two exceptions. So this comes after a year in which the court struck down a Louisiana law that required doctors who perform abortions to have the right to admit patients at a nearby hospital. That was last summer's Russo versus June Medical Services decision. And that was a 5-4 outcome requiring no admitting privileges whatsoever. And we now have replacing Justice Ginsburg, a new justice in Amy Coney Barrett, who has remarked on her originalism and the fact that she interprets the Constitution using a textualist approach. And we also know personally in her own life, she is opposed to abortion, though that should not factor into the way that she decides one way or another. So we have a couple of complicating circumstances as concerns a review of this gestational age act. But 
regardless of where the justices come down, they'll naturally have to refer to Roe versus Wade as precedent at the high court. I know the media has hyped this as the case that will likely uh, that Roe versus Wade will likely stand or fall, which might be a bit of an overstatement. Now, Mississippi raised three issues, as you've written in the Daily Signal, three issues on appeal, whether abortion providers have third party standing to file lawsuits on behalf of their uh, uh, their clients, their patients, if you will, challenging laws related to the rights of abortion, whether the validity uh, validity rather of its law should be analyzed under the undue burden, which the court addressed it uh, some uh, time in the past. Can you explain what Mississippi is asking the court uh, to decide in this case and whether or not it's likely to have national implications or it's going to be, uh, it's more likely that it will be narrowly decided uh, and will only impact Mississippi? So you're right in that they had actually raised requests of review on three issues at the Supreme Court level and the Supreme Court only took up one. And this is why I think this is sort of sounding some bells for a lot of people on a potential overruling of Roe. And that is the fact that they are determining whether limitations on abortions after 15 weeks are on their face constitutional. So in other words, can a state limit abortions after 15 weeks? We know in the past it was related to viability. That's usually 22 to 24 weeks. Mm -hmm. What the Supreme Court's saying is we are making one determination. Are these restrictions after 15 weeks constitutional or not? And it's the first time they've asked this question of viability since Planned Parenthood versus Casey in 1992. And the first time they've taken into consideration gestational age since Roe versus Wade. So limiting it to Strictly the question of constitutionality of these gestational age limits, I think, has a lot of people really thinking that they're going to do something drastic with Roe. Now, you point out that some scholars believe that the Mississippi case is the perfect vehicle to overturn Roe versus Wade and its progeny, Planned Parenthood versus Casey. Do you hold to that opinion? Um, It is, of course, the first major abortion challenge heard by the court since uh, the newest justice. Again, what's your view on whether or not this is uh, the perfect vehicle to revisit Roe v. Wade? Well, some people have criticized the law itself, Mississippi's Gestational Age Act from 2018, as being sort of a Roe shopping vehicle. In other words, so limiting of abortion that it required the Supreme Court to finally take up the question of whether or not there was A, viability, and B, whether or not abortion restrictions were constitutional. So the fact that we've limited it to solely that question has, I think, a few people who are sort of advocates of reproductive choice up in arms. They have indicated, obviously, that they believe this was custom designed to raise this question. While it may have been, obviously, Mississippi passed a valid legislative law signed into law by the governor. They followed appropriate process through the legislative avenue and democratic debate to be able to pass this law. Whether or not this is a vehicle designed to take up the question at the Supreme Court, we may never know. And I certainly hear those concerns that this was a potential shopping of the issue. But I am hard-pressed to think of another case that might present such a factual and procedural alignment with previous cases as the one we're seeing come out of Mississippi and the fact that we've seen a narrowing of the questions just to the one primary question is another reason a lot of people think, well, this is going to be the case to do it. 
You quote um, uh, late Justice uh, Antonin Scalia, uh, in which he, in the Casey ruling, uh, issued a, a dissent. He wrote, the states may, if they wish, permit abortion on demand, but the Constitution does not require them to do so. The permissibility of abortion and the limitations upon it are to be resolved, like most important questions in our democracy, by citizens trying to persuade one another and then voting. We don't have that option when it comes to abortion on demand in this country because of Roe versus Wade. Um, Amer- and you also point out that American sentiment continues uh, to support limitations on abortion. Uh, again, yeah. the Supreme Court justices will be making a decision based on the constitutionality of the question put before them. But your thoughts on on the likely outcome of this, and I'm asking you to speculate, which may not be fair. Uh, but again, <laughs> what, what might we Won't be, be looking for? In the Court? <laughs> I'm sure not. <laughs> it won't be the first time. I, I will say that certainly national sentiment is behind limitations on abortion. In fact, we're only one of seven countries in the world that permit elective abortion past 20 weeks. 70% of Americans favor outlawing abortion past the first trimester or the first three months, which is around that 15-week or earlier mark. So we know that public sentiment is behind this. Obviously, that leads us to a question of what we think judicial interpretation is going to lean to. It's hard to say because Roberts himself has switched sides between Mm -hmm. 2016 and 2020 on the abortion issue, taking into consideration precedent of Roe in the one case and taking it not into consideration in the earlier case. So Roberts has become sort of our new Kennedy. He is a bit of a swing vote at this point. But we do have three other Trump-appointed justices who do have conservative bona fides. So I am cautiously optimistic that we'll see a limiting at the federal level and it will be sent back to the state because that's the way federalism should work. And the Mm -hmm. separation of powers indicates we should send this through the legislatures to be debated there. Well, we will certainly watch with interest. Uh, They're going to take it up in their next term, uh, which begins in October. So we have some waiting to do. But it'll be an opportunity for the justices to revisit Roe versus Wade and the question put before it by the Mississippi uh, um, uh, appeal. Thank you so much for talking with us. I really appreciate your insight. Thanks for having me. Sarah Partial Perry is a legal fellow for the Edwin Meese III Center for Legal and Judicial Studies at the Heritage Foundation. Up next, we're going to talk with Grace Melton. She serves as Senior Associate for Social Issues at the United Nations on the Biden administration's promotion of LGBTQI rights in foreign policy, threatening international religious freedom. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, the United States can and should defend the inalienable rights of all individuals, so says my next guest. And it should encourage other countries to do the same. But that's not the same as penalizing them for rejecting an ideological agenda. Another executive action designed to advance the special interests of a particular group under the guise of human rights will unnecessarily risk religious freedom at home and abroad and illustrate progressive prejudice against faith and tradition. Well, the Biden administration is promoting LGBTQI rights in foreign policy, and that threatens international religious freedom. Well, here to explain more about that is Grace Melton. She serves as Senior Associate for Social Issues at the United Nations, uh, joining us to talk about this issue. Thank you so much for joining us, Grace. 
Thanks for having me. Well, let's talk about what the Biden administration is doing in their effort to promote LGBTQI rights in foreign policy. Um, well, sure. I mean, I I think they're, they're, they've said that they will do quite a bit. It's, it's clear that um, promoting these rights that are based on um, sort of, I like to think of it as membership in a particular group, right? If it's based on somebody's sexual orientation or their gender identity, um, and they've said that this is a priority uh, to promote um, those particular rights, which that are really kind of undefined. Um, and my concern is that it's happening at the expense of religious liberty, which is, um, you know, an, an inalienable right that applies to all of us. Um, regardless of our race or our nationality or our sexual orientation or any other factor. Um, you know, as Americans, we look to the, the, the Constitution and our First Amendment um, as highlighting the, the priority that we give to religious freedom. Uh, so it's, it's not just one right among many. Uh, it's, it's a particularly important natural pre-political right. Mm-hmm. You write that the Biden administration has recently apparently decided to deprioritize religious freedom. And you quote uh, Secretary of State Anthony Blinken's uh, recent statement that there's no hierarchy that makes some rights more important than others. Uh, it's an unequivocal rejection of the assertion that religious freedom is a pre-political, as you've just described, natural and inalienable human right that deserves and requires great protection. And the, the, the challenge here, the problem is that the Biden administration appears to be threatening international religious freedom, not just what we enjoy here, but in terms of using the federal government to influence other countries, undermining international religious freedom as well. Can you give us an example, as you do in your, uh, your column, uh, for example, the Department of Defense? Sure. Well, um, you're, you're referencing um, this executive action that President Biden issued, I believe, in February and we've now seen some of the agencies, in particular the Department of Defense, um, come out and say they are going to look for opportunities to, um, to to do a number of things, like really combating intolerance or discrimination, these kinds of ideas that don't have a, a clear um, legal definition, certainly not with, within the scope of what the Department of Defense is, is talking about doing. And, and the concern is that they'll be used to really bully other countries into um, conforming their laws on marriage or other issues of sexual morality um, along the lines of what the, the progressive left would like them to do. And this is particularly um, offensive, really, to religious believers in Muslim and Christian-majority countries in particular. We, we just, um, you know, we've seen cases popping up um, in Europe and Canada and Australia of um, particular individuals who have been um, made to to pay pretty significant prices, whether that's uh, loss of their job or um, just you know public shaming um, for expressing you know biblically held beliefs about um, marriage or about gender, uh, and we've seen hate speech laws used to um, to, to penalize them. I mean, there's, there's a case I wrote about in, in one of my recent pieces about Pavi Rasanen, who is a, a member of parliament in Finland, who has been charged with hate speech violations for comments that she has made. Um, there is a, a recent case in Canada, the professor um, who, you know, privately in, in his capacity, not as a member of, 
of the university, from what I understand, but as, as a father, has spoken out um, at a Catholic school board meeting, um, quoting the, the catechism of the Catholic Church, and he's facing investigations over, um, you know, spewing hate, um, which, you know, from, from somebody who, from the perspective of a religious believer, you know, they have the, the right to share, to, to manifest those beliefs um, in their speech and in their action in the public square. Um, so this is really problematic when um, there's um, really a, a totalitarian tactic used by the, the, this progressive ideology that's really hostile to, to traditional faiths. One of the things that you point out in your column is that this is going to cause friction with many religious believers, especially Muslim or Christian majority countries, where the United States is seeking to impose, uh, sometimes using the military, its view on the subject. Uh, you also quote, I think it's Leanne Thao, Theo, or something like that, professor of law and former member of parliament from Singapore, um, writing about the, the colonial um, nature of this this e- effort to impose American views, and I use that very broadly because I'm not sure these reflect the majority of Americans, but impose them um, on countries that hold very different uh, views as well. Exactly. And, um, you know, Professor Teo wrote a paper for us at the Heritage Foundation kind of describing this, um, you know, on a more academic level, this problem. Um, you know, we've, we've also just been hearing from um, whether it's members of the clergy um, in Africa or um Cardinals, you know, in the Catholic Church in Spain, or um, I believe in Mexico, other, you know, plenty of other places, they've been um, really saying, we're just standing up for the the beliefs that we hold as a particular um, member of a particular faith, or also, um, you know, as, as, as Africans, or as, um, you know, a cultural group, that we're, we're proud of our beliefs, and we're not, um, you know, they don't appreciate, um, you know, this, this woke superiority uh, from whether it's from the West, whether it's seen as being from the EU or the UN or the United States, you know, telling them, um, you know, that, that their beliefs are wrong. Mm-hmm. Now, has the Supreme Court weighed in on uh, these issues in general? You make reference to um, multiple cases in which they've confirmed that the government may not treat mere disagreement particularly when it's rooted in religious belief um, over these issues, whether two men or two women can, can marry, uh, with hostility. Does this violate what the Supreme Court has already uh, suggested uh, is, is unlawful, unconstitutional for government to, to try to do? Uh, well, I mean, I don't want to get too far away from my particular expertise. I'm, I'm not a constitutional scholar or lawyer, but... Uh, you know, the U.S. Supreme Court certainly protects speech in the First, First Amendment, and particularly in um, the Obergefell decision, um, Justice Kennedy was articulating in the, in the majority opinion that, um, you know, people of goodwill can, can disagree on what the, the purpose and meaning of marriage is, and disagreement is not the same as discrimination. Uh, so, but I, I think often in these sorts of conversations, um, mere disagreement is conflated as discrimination and, and even further uh, as violence. And, um, you know, that's, that really does a disservice to our religious freedoms and our, our freedom of speech uh, and, and something that, you know, the Biden administration, frankly, you know, should, should 
prioritize our our constitutionally protected um, natural rights. How aggressively is the administration moving on this and what should we look for? Um, well, I mean, I would say they, they have not made any secret of the fact that um, promoting both abortion and this umbrella of LGBT rights um, is, is a priority. Um, I think I think we have already, and we'll continue to see it in many places, um, both in the domestic agenda and um, in our foreign policy. Grace Milton, thank you so much for talking with us. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Again, Grace Melton serves as Senior Associate for Social Issues at the United Nations. We've got news and traffic coming up at the top of the hour. Then later in the 5 o'clock hour, we'll talk with Dr. Everett Piper. His latest book, Grow Up, Life Isn't Safe, But It's Good. Um, He's the author of uh, This Is Not a Daycare, his first book, in which he outlined the, the nature of the problem. In his second book, Grow Up, he really offers solutions to what we're seeing. He'll be joining us in the uh, 5 o'clock hour. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back after news and traffic. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up, we're going to talk with Dr. Everett Piper, his latest book, which is, in my book, a must-read, Grow Up. Life isn't safe, but it's good. It's full of solutions to our current cultural problems. Coming up in our next two segments. Well, a Washington state man used the Second Amendment to save his neighbors, police say. Jonathan Turley points out that Prince Harry and Meghan are joining the growing U.S. anti-free speech movement. And Speaker Pelosi has extended remote voting amid pushback and uh, and the new CDC rules. The ousted Space Force officer says that he's been misportrayed and has received thousands of notes from troops supporting him. A New Jersey residents will uh, bear the highest tax burden over the li- over their lifetimes, according to a new study. And a Babe Ruth baseball card could hit um, hit it out of the park in an online auction. Prince Harry and Meghan are being slammed over a new corporate deal. The IRS probably won't audit you this year. We'll tell you more about that probably tomorrow. We won't have time today. A U.S. Airlines is saying that they're going to start weighing passengers at the gate. And 21 states are ending the $300 unemployment benefits this summer. The GOP is seeking to get Democrats on the record condemning Hamas. Amazing. It's taken effort to get anybody to condemn terrorists. But uh, there are Democrats who clearly side with Israel's enemies. A White House environmental advisor's uh, rejection of nuclear power has become an issue, despite the hard fact that it's good for the environment. Dan Crenshaw says, tell me you're not serious about reducing emissions without telling me you're not serious about reducing emissions. Governor Cuomo received $5 million for his book praising his handling of COVID in New York. And President Biden is looking to pardon criminals based on race rather than merit. The New York Times calls it a rebuke of Trump, whom they insist pardon um, based upon wealth or connections. Vice President uh, Kamala Harris uh, blamed the immigration crisis on climate change again, their catch-all perpetrator. And Vadi Bachman says the left is trying to silence black voices like hers. The elites of our society urge us to elevate black voices, but it's important to understand what they mean. They don't want to elevate all black voices, but only those who subscribe to the creed of critical race theory. If you don't avow um, that our society is infected with systematic racism and that white supremacy, white privilege, and white fragility are the root of all of our problems that black people face, then you are a heretic. 
your conscience uh, uh, is uh, white and therefore oppressive, no matter how black your skin may be. And a New York school is putting fourth graders in restorative justice circles. Uh, The uh, push uh, is to focus on left-wing and Black Lives Matter activism. Well, in other news, uh, the president is heaping praise on squad member uh, Rashida Tlaib, Representative Tlaib, after they argued on a Detroit airport tarmac. President Biden and the Democratic representative engaged in a tense, roughly eight-minute conversation on the airport tarmac in Detroit after Biden's arrival there Tuesday. Tlaib refused to say what she and the president discussed. At one point, Biden patted the congresswoman's shoulder. Later during a speech in Dearborn, he lavishly complimented her. I want to say to you that I admire your intellect, I admire your passion, and I admire your concern for so many other people. And it's from my heart, Biden said later, of Tlaib during a speech at the Dearborn Ford factory. I pray that your grandma and family are well. I'm going to do all I can to see that they are. You're a fighter, he added. Uh, though he mistakenly referred to her as Rashid, um, and God, thank you for being a fighter, end quote. Well, Tlaib has uh, been fiercely uh, critical of Biden and the State Department's handling of the recent conflict between Hamas and Israel. If you support a ceasefire, then you get out of the way of the U.N. Security Council and join other countries in demanding it, she said in a tweet directed at the president and secretary of state Blinken. Apartheid in chief Netanyahu will not listen to anyone asking nicely, she continued. He commits war crimes and openly violates international law. In other developments, the democratic divide over Israel is on full display as the Jewish state classes with Hamas terrorists. Squad member Rashida Tlaib claims Israel is promoting racism and dehumanization under an apartheid system. And the Israeli ambassador accuses Tlaib of stoking tension over the Al-Aqsa Mosque. Former Vice President Pence, he slams uh, the president and the administration for trying to create a false equivalency between Israel and Hamas. And former Secretary Pompeo warns that U.S. money to Iran could be funneled to terrorists attacking Israel. Well, Black Lives Matter says it stands with Hamas terrorists in the Israeli conflict. The leading BLM organization declared solidarity with Palestinians this week, days after Hamas terrorists in Gaza began firing a relentless barrage of rockets into Israel, indiscriminately shelling civilian targets as well as dropping some missiles short and blowing up buildings within its territory. In other developments, how Democrats blocked a consideration of a bill sanctioning Hamas financial supporters, and an NBC Peacock host has been blasted for a deleted tweet equating Israel and the United States to the Hamas terrorist organization. A former Obama aide says he talked to the people uh, who worked uh, in the Gaza media building knowing Hamas had office space there. Tucker Carlson says the great unmasking is finally upon us, but not everyone is happy. Tucker Carlson is a host on Fox News, and he sounded off Tuesday on what he called the great unmasking. For young Americans, normal, healthy people, the risk of dying from the coronavirus is still minuscule, he wrote. For example, a typical 22-year-old in New York has around a 0.6 chance of out of a million of dying from the virus. Your odds of drowning in a bathtub or being hit by lightning are significantly higher than that. So it's a very low risk, and that's good news. You'd think all of us would be happy to hear it. Well, the great unmasking is finally upon us, but not everyone is happy about it. Suddenly, in neighborhoods littered with signs about BLM and climate change, we have a new public health emergency on our hands. It's a mental health crisis. Amazingly, many Americans don't want to stop wearing masks. They want to continue to hide behind paper or cloth. Why? There's no science behind this. It's a 
say neuroses, just like obsessive hand washing, but it appears to be spreading fast like its old its own virus. In other developments, GOP members are revolting against the House floor mask rule after new CDC guidance. President Biden jokes about uh, running over a reporter with a vehicle when asked about Israel during the Ford drive test. Now, if that had been a Republican, this would have been headline news. Mark McCloskey, the St. Louis man who defended his home from BLM, announced a Senate run to stop Biden's socialism. And Susan Collins' campaign donations from Hawaii, a defense contractor, prompt an FBI investigation. Congress is seeking Boeing records on the 737 MAX and the 787 production issues. And Vista Outdoor CEO claims ammunition sales are rising post-COVID. Uh, Google Docs plans to prompt users to write in gender-free language. Eight New York City uh, suspects have been accused of stealing $2 million in COVID relief, flaunting the cash online as gas prices climb amid Biden's pipeline closures. Woke corporations, including Nike and Coca-Cola, are being called out in a new ad campaign. Well, House Democrats are blocking a, a bill sanctioning terrorists. Uh, House Democrats reject a Republican push on Tuesday to consider legislation that would apply sanctions on Hamas militants amid an escalating military conflict with Israel. Democrats blocked a bid to bring the Palestinian International Terrorism Support Prevention Act up for consideration in a 217-209 vote along party lines. The bill, introduced by Representative Brian Mast, a Republican out of Florida, would impose sanctions on foreign entities known to be providing or provided financial assistance to Hamas, among other measures. Meanwhile, Biden appeared to get uh, in the heated discussion with the congresswoman on the subject, and the New York Times claims Biden was said to sharpen his tone with Netanyahu in private. The Biden administration said Trump didn't do anything constructive to bring peace to the Middle East, ignoring significant achievements. Dr. Albert Moeller looked at Israel's history and current difficult uh, position. You can find that on his program online, The Briefing. Well, Black Lives Matter tweets support for Palestinians and Chicago mayor, the Chicago mayor is refusing to do interviews with white reporters in shockingly um, bright relief, a shockingly racist move by the mayor of America's third largest city. Instead of outrage, the media is simply complying. Beth Bauman, uh, as a white reporter, I can honestly say I'm not missing anything from this one on one interview. Well, Tennessee has become the second state to stop the medical community from destroying the gender of children called gender affirming health care by this su- surprisingly uh, biased story out of uh, Axios. In reality, the state is stopping adults from providing hormone treatment that keeps a child from going through puberty. A deceptive Axios tweet claimed Tennessee becomes a, the second state to ban medical care for trans minors, which is not at all what occurred. Be aware of what's actually happening as opposed to what you're reading. The Oregonian reports that three quarters of the Portland area residents do not want to see any defunding of police and a plurality, plurality rather, actually want to see an increase in police as residents are discovering what a mess their city has become without a strong police presence. The story notes the findings come as activists and some civic leaders in Portland continue to demand further reductions to policing. A cluster of Republicans rebel against Pelosi's mask mandate, and according to a recent poll, 83% of Japanese do not want Olympics, uh, Olympics rather, the games in Japan this summer. According to the story, it's due to a soaring coronavirus caseload. Well, Virtue Signaling Hate Crimes Act passed Congress and heads to the President Biden's desk, and uh, we'll continue to uh, take a look at some of the headline news. Uh, in uh, the latter part of the program, our final segment. But up next, 
Dr. Everett Piper. Grow Up is the title of his book, Life Isn't Safe, But It's Good. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back to The Georgine Rice Show. I've been anticipating this conversation uh, not only today, but for the uh, the days previous in which we were told that we had an opportunity to talk with Dr. Everett Piper. Now, some of you are familiar with his earlier work, and I'm delighted that he's written a second book. We're going to talk about it. Uh, here today. He makes the point that the left is quick to cancel, to boycott, to blacklist any ideas they don't agree with. Um, there are a number of recent headlines that make that point. We won't go over them now, but perhaps in our conversation. Well, former university president and national best-selling author, Dr. Everett Piper, his newest book, Grow Up, Life Isn't Safe, But It's Good, addresses cancel culture head on. Well, in his latest op-ed for the Washington Times titled Progressive Tolerance is a self-congratulating virtue signal, uh, signaling one-way street. Dr. Piper reveals the uh, the damning truth about the progress and the progressive tolerance movement. Today, he joins us to talk about his latest book, and I am delighted to uh, draw that to your attention. Again, grow up. Life isn't safe, but it's good. Dr. Piper, such a delight to have you with us. Oh, I'm always honored. Thank you for having me on. Now, this is unlike your first book, which is a must read from any serious thinker who wants to understand the culture, the direction we're going and what the problem is. Uh, this second book really purports to offer some solutions and give us some direction. And where do where do we go in this culture we find ourselves in? Is that a fair characterization of the two books? Yes, it is. Uh, in Not a Daycare, which is the first book you're referring to. I basically called out the snowflake rebellion and I waved the flag as an educator and I said, this is not going to end well. I called out the narcissism and the self-absorption of the snowflakes that were protesting at Berkeley and Brown and every place in between. And I think today, as I write this second book, Grow Up, I'm basically saying this. I told you so. I told you when I wrote Not a Daycare that what's taught today in the classroom will be practiced tomorrow in our culture. And here we are some five years later, and the snowflakes have graduated. They left Berkeley and Brown, and they now work for Google and Amazon and Facebook and Twitter and Major League Baseball. And the cancel culture that they were so notorious for on the college campus is now in the corporate boardroom and they're canceling you. They're canceling me. They're silencing us. Anytime we say something that makes them feel uncomfortable and that's a very dangerous place for any culture to be, because when you start elevating feelings over facts, you're going to lose your freedom. So grow up is not so much bemoaning the problem any further. However, I do address it. Mm -hmm. It's a book of 20 different lessons, solutions, if you will, on what to do about this nonsense. Well, and I think that's what people are waiting for. We recognize what's happening. What to do about it is another question. In your brilliantly written introduction, you start out by saying it's 1984 and we're living in schizophrenic times, Dickensian times, Orwellian times, the best of times, but yet the worst. Times where we demand the truth while reveling in our lies. Times of great material gain, but of even greater moral loss. Times of calling good evil and evil good, bitter sweet and sweet bitter. Times of the tolerance not tolerating what they find intolerable. And you go on from there to describe the times that we're living in, which is almost laughable if it weren't true, if we weren't seeing it unfolding and recognizing the implications of what's now being broadly embraced and imposed. Uh, it would be almost comical, but of course it is not. 
Well, it, it is. I mean, we actually hear people say stuff like this. I can't tolerate your intolerance. I hate hateful people. I'm sure nothing is sure. I know nothing can be known. I'm absolutely confident there are no absolutes. This is the self-refuting duplicity of the postmodern mind. We've got people like AOC and Nancy Pelosi that actually say this stuff, mm-hmm. and it makes no sense. They're sawing off the rhetorical branch on which they sit, and it's going to come crumbling down. How did we get in this mess? Bad ideas. You teach bad ideas, you're going to be bad culture. How do we get out of this mess? Well, if garbage in, garbage out is the problem, maybe goodness in, goodness out is the solution. Maybe if we would, would return to teaching the time-tested truths, those self-evident truths that are endowed to us by our Creator, biblical truths, self, self-evident truth, revelational truth, natural law, maybe if we would teach the goodness of debate, the goodness of dissonance, the goodness of truth, we could actually get out of this mess and have a free culture one than, rather than one that's controlled by a bunch of self-righteous oligarchs that want to tell you and me how to do everything today, down to the point where they're telling us how to use the bathroom and what pronouns to use. Mm. This is not liberty, this is fascism. What's at stake is the freedom of speech, the freedom of religion, the freedom of association, of expression. Many of us are overwhelmed by what we're seeing and hearing. Uh, The mainstream media is not doing its job. Journalism has become something else altogether. And the temptation is to put our heads in the sand and just assume that, first of all, there's nothing we can do about it. And secondly, um, we're not really prepared to do anything about it. What's at stake here if we allow this wave to continue to overwhelm the culture? Well, I'm not a physicist, but there's one thing I did learn in junior high class, and that is vacuums are always filled. When you kill God, when you take God out of the public square, you're not going to have radical secularism lived for very long, because secularism cannot sustain itself. It's a vacuum. Something's going to fill the vacuum, and that vacuum that has resulted, or excuse me, the, the, the taking the Judeo-Christian ethic out of our culture has created this vacuum that will be filled, and it's being filled right now by wokeism, by a revival of Gnosticism, by self-righteous congratulation, where I elevate myself to be as God, and I'm going to impose my will on everybody else because they won't worship me. That's where we are as a culture right now. The solution is to get back to recognizing that the Judeo-Christian ethic, the biblical worldview, is the worldview that's given us greater freedom, greater amounts of freedom than at any other time in human history. The biblical worldview is a worldview of liberty. It's not a worldview of license. It's not a worldview of control. It's a worldview of freedom. We're talking with Dr. Everett Piper. His latest book is titled Grow Up. Life isn't safe, but it's good. And as we mentioned earlier, this book really focuses on solutions. And I think people are hungry for solutions. What can we do about our current um, situation that, again, is is overtaking culture? We're seeing it, seeing it in government. We're seeing it in journalism. We're seeing it uh, in education and elsewhere. Let's talk about solutions. Where do we begin to confront um, this uh, this current trend uh, away from personal responsibility and uh, and fascism in which my views are imposed on others. And unless you are willing to conform, you will be silenced. Well, uh, let me just take one of the chapters out of the book. It's titled Don't Fall in the Pool. And in that chapter, I tell the story of Narcissus. 
um, Greek mythology, mm-hmm. Narcissus being so infatuated, so in love with himself, so mesmerized by his own beauty that he sat at the river's edge, gazing at his own reflection in the pool until one day, satiated and exhausted from his own self-worship, he fell into the pool and drowned. What's the lesson there? You're not God. I'm not God. There's something bigger, better, more grand, and more beautiful than you and me. And we need to elevate ourselves to the higher goods rather than being too easily satisfied with our own selfishness and self-worship. If we gaze at our own reflection, if we look at the God we see in the mirror and start worshiping it, rather than looking at the God we see in the Bible and humbling ourselves before him, then we're going to suffer and we're going to fall in the pool. The solution is to put first things first. The subtitle of my book is Life is Not Safe, But It's Good. C.S. Lewis tells us in the Chronicles of Narnia that the great lion Aslan is not safe, but he's good. So the Christ figure, Jesus Christ himself, is not safe, but he's good. We need to paraphrase that and recognize that the ivory tower isn't safe, it's good. Freedom isn't safe, but it's good. Liberty isn't safe, but it's good. There are good things in life, and there are safe things in life, and we need to aspire for the goodness and not be too easily satisfied with the safety. Now, to whom is this book written? Uh, we know that the ideas that uh, you wrote about in your first first book have uh, made their way off of college campuses and into the broader culture. Is this for those who have embraced this new worldview? Is it for the rest of us who are concerned about the, the course that the nation and the culture is taking? Or is it for everyone? To whom is it specifically written? Well, it's a good question. I had some somebody ask me once, is this a generational joust? Are you poking at millennials and Gen Zers? And the answer is no. It's a challenge to everyone, because I would argue that this isn't an age, this is not an age-specific issue. Mm-hmm. This is an issue that has overwhelmed all of us. When you have the Speaker of the United States House of Representatives stooping to the juvenile antics of tearing up the president's speech at a State of the Union address because she doesn't like what he said. If we have actually become a nation where 70-year-olds can behave like children and get away with it, we have a problem. All of us need to grow up. The Apostle Paul tells us in, in Ephesians that we need to speak the truth in love and grow up. He's not just talking to kids. He's talking to the entire church, that we need to set childish things aside and grow up. This challenge to grow up and act like mature adults, thinking, critical, mature adults, is something our entire culture needs to hear right now, not just millennials or Gen Zers. We're talking this afternoon with Dr. Everett Piper, his latest book, Grow Up, Life Isn't Safe, But It's Good. The book is published by Regnery, just released. It is a must read. And I don't say that about many of the books that we review on this program. This is a must read as well as his uh, first publication. We'll be back in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with Dr. Everett Piper. Grow Up is the title of his book, Life Isn't Safe, But It's Good. Uh, an excellent uh, read for anyone who looks at uh, what's going on in the culture and looking for solutions. One of your chapters is titled Love Lost. Uh, and that may be surprising, the subject of love in the context of uh, these issues and the solution. What does love have to do with it? Where we find ourselves and how we we can uh, find ourselves out of the current situation. 
Well, this is a this is a chapter that's very important for our time because I'm arguing in the book, and I've argued at speeches that I've given and other writing that I've done, is that our postmodern culture has abandoned the objective definition of words. And one of those words that we've compromised greatly is the word love. We now think love and sex are synonymous. We treat it that way. Well, I would just say this to all the listeners right now on your show, Georgina, that um, love and sex are not synonymous because we love a lot of people that we choose not to have sex with. At least I hope we do. So they can't be synonymous terms. Love is uh, synonymous with Christian charity. I was once on the O'Reilly Factor, and Bill O'Reilly and I got onto the issue of tolerance. And I looked at Mr. O'Reilly and I said this. I, had, I asked him a rhetorical question. I said, Mr. O'Reilly, on your anniversary, did you send your wife an I tolerate you card? And I think I accomplished something that very few people have accomplished. He was silent for a minute. And then I suggested, you probably didn't send your wife an I tolerate you card because it wouldn't have ended very well. And the reason for that is tolerance is an inferior virtue. Tolerance says, I don't love you. I don't even like you, but I'll tolerate you. Go do what you want. Christian charity, love, is a superior virtue. Whereas tolerance says, I could not care less about you. Do what you want. Love says, I care deeply about you, enough to stand in your way and tell you to stop. Love is superior. Tolerance is inferior. And again, this goes back to the subtitle of my book. There are first things and there are second things. Safety is a second thing. Goodness, as defined by God, not you, not me, the good things that are defined by God are the first things. And C.S. Lewis told us, if you put first things first, you're going to get the first and maybe the second thrown into boot. But if you reverse your priorities and get them all screwed up, you're not going to get either the first or the second. Again, we need to grow up, set childish things aside, and speak the truth. It's an objective reality. It's not about your feelings. It's about the facts. In love, love is not just enablement or tolerance, it actually cares enough to stand in a person's way and help them mature, speak the truth in love, and grow up. You paraphrase uh, Martin Niemuller um, in his famous um, uh, statement that first, uh, again, paraphrasing, first they came for the bakers and I said nothing because I wasn't a baker. Then they came for the photographer and I said nothing because I wasn't a photographer. Then they came for the florist and I said nothing because I wasn't a florist. Then they came for the conservative black woman and conservative Jew and I said nothing because I wasn't black or Jewish, although I'm black. Just put that in there. When they came for me, there was no, there was no one left to speak. Um, these are trying and difficult times in which courage uh, among those who recognize the truth as opposed to the, the culture that we find ourselves in requires that we step up. What do you think is the most important thing that we need to do? First of all, understanding, I suppose, the culture, but that we need to do to stand against and push against what is popularized in virtually every um, area of, of influence and leadership in the country. I was asked that question in a speech I gave down in Oklahoma City just a week or so ago. And I, I said, here's the solution. The body of Christ needs to grow a spine. My land, get some courage, get some confidence, engage culture, run toward the storm. Don't run away from it. Wave the banner of truth. Wave the banner of truth with a capital T. If you win waving that banner, great, that's God's grace. If you lose waving that banner, who cares? It's the right banner to wave. Be willing to go down fighting. If you're not willing to lose everything, then you're never going to win 
anything. You've got to be able to lose for what's right if you're going to gain a victory. This is what Martin Luther King Jr. knew. He was willing to lose for the sake of victory. This is what our founding fathers knew. They were willing to pledge their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor for the sake of what? Human freedom, for liberty, for the founding of a constitutional republic. Our culture right now, even the church, has lost its spine. It's lost its confidence, and it's lost its courage. We have to be able and willing and eager to run into the storm, not away from it. We're talking with Dr. Everett Piper, his latest book, Grow Up, Life isn't safe, but it's good. You um, quote to Mr. Weaver, in which he makes the point that ideas have consequences. And his seminal book was written at a time uh, following the war in which that was made, uh, uh, that was proven in bright relief. Um, Talk a little bit about the ideas that are being taught to young people today, the ideas that we hold, how we confront them in a way that will resonate and uh, can ultimately challenge our current course. Well, Richard Weaver's seminal work is titled Ideas Have Consequences. He wrote it in 1948, and I think the timing of that book is very pertinent because he's writing it just a handful of years after the Holocaust, after the Nazi regime, after the attempt to exterminate Jews from the face of the earth. He's saying that ideas have consequences. Basically, I'll paraphrase Weaver. He's saying he's saying this, garbage in, garbage out. We should have seen this coming. We've been teaching terrible ideas for generations. We shouldn't be surprised to see the chickens coming home to roost. And that warning that he gave us in 1948 is so pertinent right now. Today, we're teaching that socialism is good and that capitalism is bad. We're teaching that public ownership of property is good, but private ownership of your own home is bad. We're teaching conflict theory. We used to teach the bourgeoisie against the proletariat. That didn't work for Marxism, so they just moved the target, and now it's racial conflict. And now we have critical race theory, critical legal theory, and critical critical theory in general, which pits me against you. I deserve my pound of flesh. It's all about me. This is a childish way at looking at life. I would say the common thread in all of these alphabet soup agendas, whether it be LGBTQ, XYZ, or BLM, or critical race theory, intersectionality, white privilege, all of these arguments, cancel culture, uh, uh, trigger warnings, microaggressions, they all have the common denominator of selfishness, self-absorption, narcissism, childishness, and a perpetual whine and pout where I want mine at the expense of yours. That is not an adult way to live. Mm. Well, at this, at the core, this book is uh, meant to be a book of solutions, and I, th- I know that you will find them there. I highly recommend it, and uh, again, would make this a, a on my list a must read for those of us who take seriously what we're witnessing across the culture. Dr. Piper, thank you so much for the book, and thank you for taking the time to be with us here today. I really appreciate it. I'm so honored to be on your show. Blessings to you. The same to you. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, the Senate GOP will push the pause button on the House Riot Commission. The Washington Examiner has more on that story. And New York's Attorney General says the Trump Organization probe is now a criminal probe. Citizenship rules are being eased for kids born abroad via IVF or surrogacy. And dozens of House Democrats are citing racial reckoning to oppose targeting gang members for deportation. 
apparently safety is not of great concern. More than 61,000 migrants have been released into the United States under Biden's Uh, During the pandemic and border officials sees more fentanyl in the first four months of 2021 than during the same period in 2020. Several states report zero covid deaths for the first time in months. And Texas governor is banning the mask mandates for public schools and local governments. Officers won't be charged in the fatal shooting of Andrew Brown, Jr., according to The Hill, calling the shooting justified. And Black Lives Matter is standing in in solidarity with uh, Palestinian Hamas terrorists and vows to fight for liberation. Twitter doesn't follow the science and suspects and suspends rather a a Spanish politician for tweeting a man cannot get pregnant, which, of course, is true. A man cannot. Virginia Little League coaches must attend anti-racist training and ultra woke Saturday Night Live has ultra low ratings. Well, Tennessee plans to mandate bathroom signs about transgender use, and France is banning woke gender-neutral language in their schools, calling it a danger for our country. Well, on this day in history, 1921, Congress passes and President Warren G. Harding signs the Emergency Quota Act, which establishes national quotas for immigrants. 1943, in his second wartime address to the U.S. Congress, British Prime Minister Winston Churchill pledges his country's full support support rather in the fight against Japan. That evening, Churchill meets with President Franklin D. Roosevelt at the White House, where the two leaders agree on May the 1st, 1944, as the date for the D-Day invasion of France. The operation would end up being launched over a month later. On this day in history, 2014, the U.S. charges five Chinese military officials with hacking into U.S. companies' computers to steal vital trade secrets. And finally, on this day in history, 2019, Robert F. Smith, a billionaire tech investor, pledges to eliminate student debt for the entire 2019 Morehouse College graduating class. That was and is a very Big deal. Well, the Biden administration is making a stark departure from past administrations and how it talks about and treats religious freedom. In his remarks on the 12th of this month on the release of the 2020 report on international religious freedom, Secretary of State Anthony Blinken correctly asserted that religious freedom is a human right, one at the heart of what it means to be human. Unfortunately, Blinken then went on to say that religious freedom is not more or less important than any other right, that all human rights are interdependent, and that religious freedom, like every human right, is universal and co-equal with other rights. Well, this is a theme that uh, President Joe Biden's Secretary of State has revisited several times since his March 30th speech, repudiating the um, Unalienable Rights Commission convened by his immediate predecessor as Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. Well, Blinken's repudiation of the commission's report is purely political because the commission highlighted the importance of religious freedom. The progressive left saw the report as presenting a stumbling block to advancing abortion and LGBTQI rights, which are top priorities of the Biden administration. Well, the secretary of state's remarks represent a sea change in the understanding and framing of America's view of international religious freedom. His assurance that the Biden-Harris administration will protect and defend religious freedom around the world also rings hollow since the administration simultaneously is advancing a progressive ideology that increasingly threatens religious freedom. We talked a bit about that earlier in today's program with Grace Melton, uh, who serves um, uh, as senior associates on 
uh, social issues at the United Nations. Well, the administration also is seeking to export the ideology abroad through its embrace of rights based on sexual orientation and gender identity. Religious freedom requires more than an absence of violence and discrimination. It's a pre-political natural right. It encompasses an individual's right to freely believe or not believe in religious truth and uh, to manifest those beliefs in speech and actions as expressed in the United Nations Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which has uh, global support and the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, to which the United States is a party. Religious freedom also includes the right to join religious community and extends to that community the right to develop and teach its accepted doctrines, as well as to train its clergy and educate its members. Uh, Religious freedom even applies to individuals and faith communities that peacefully adhere to politically incorrect or offensive beliefs if it doesn't uh, if it doesn't, it's meaningless. But religious uh, believers in the West increasingly find their religious liberties under attack by progressive ideology that's hostile to traditional faith. From Europe to Australia to Canada, a growing number of individuals, including members of the clergy, have become victims of progressive the progressive left. Authorities use hate speech laws to punish those who profess the belief that marriage is between a man and a woman or that gender is biologically determined. A legal as a legal scholar, Michael Ferris and Paul Coleman explain so-called hate speech laws are powerful tools in the hands of those who wish to censor unpopular opinions, silence political opposition or remove irritating voices that speak out against the orthodoxies of the day. Consider this example. Uh, in this case, Pavi uh, Ransonen, a Lutheran woman who was a member of the Finnish parliament and former minister of the interior, her religiously motivated speech led her to being indicted for hate speech that was considered derogatory and discriminatory against the LGBT community. She now faces potential jail time. According to the translation of the state prosecutor's press release, her statement uh, violates the uh, equality and dignity of homosexuals, so they Um, transcend the boundaries of freedom of speech and religion. In her own public statement, she said, unfortunately, and ultimately, the three uh, charges brought against me have to do with whether it's allowed in Finland to express your conviction that is based on the traditional teaching of the Bible and Christian churches. I do not see that I would have any uh, way uh, defamed homosexuals, uh, homosexuals rather, whose human dignity and human rights I have constantly Uh, said to respect and um, defend. So it's a view that she has held as a private citizen and not her actions as a public official. Another case involves uh, Jody Mellett, a professor at McMaster University in Toronto. Uh, Professor Mellett is the uh, father of young children who attended a Catholic school, and he's under investigation by Toronto police and his employer after asking the school board not to fly a rainbow flag celebrating lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender Individuals. In his presentation to the school board, he quoted the uh, Catechism of the Catholic Church. He urged school administrators to adhere to its teachings. And although the Archdiocese in Toronto has come to his defense, local politicians uh, and advocates accuse him of homophobia. And just this month, Reverend Dr. Bernard Randall, chaplain of an Anglican school in the UK, was reported to a counterterrorism group as a potentially violent extremist and danger to children after delivering a sermon questioning LGBT ideology. Randall told students that they do not have to accept the ideas and ideologies of activists when those ideas conflict with Christian values. So this is a growing and a very real 
concern. I wish we had more time today to talk about it, but we'll certainly revisit uh, revisit the question in the near future. Tomorrow, we're going to talk with Jack Phillips. His new book, The Cost of My Faith, How a Decision in My Cake Shop Took Me to the U.S. Supreme Court. We'll talk with him about that tomorrow. I want to thank James Blend, Clark Hilton for engineering and producing today's program, Dan Rice for the use of his office, and thank you for making The Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.